The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief where we talk every week about the transformations that come from loss. I'm so grateful to have you here, and I hope you'll go to my host page at Voice America to connect, connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or my webpage. I love hearing what you're thinking about the show, the incredible people who've joined me here in your own stories of loss and transformation. Today I have with me Frank Ostaseski. Frank is a pioneer in contemplative and end-of-life care. In 1987, Frank co-founded the Zen Hospice Project, the first Buddhist hospice in America. In 2004, he created the Meta Institute to provide broad-based education on mindful and compassionate end-of-life care. His groundbreaking work has been widely featured in the media, including the Bill Moyers television series On Our Own Terms, The Oprah Winfrey Show, and in numerous print publications. In 2001, he was non honored by H.H. Dalai Lama for his years of compassionate service to the dying and their families. Frank is a dynamic and visionary Buddhist teacher and international lecturer. He is a frequent keynote speaker for many healthcare organizations like Harvard Medical School, Mayo Clinic, National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, many others. His public programs, writings, and recordings have introduced thousands to the practices of con- contemplative care. And he does lead two multi-year training programs, End-of-Life Practitioner Program and Spirit Rock Heavenly Messengers Program, one for healthcare professionals and the other for Buddhist practitioners interested in awakening through the study of illness, aging, and death and compassionate service. He's the author of a CD series, Being a Compassionate Companion, and you can find more information about all of that on his website www.metainstitute.org. Welcome, Frank. Well, welcome. Nice to be with you. Happy to yeah. do, uh, share some time together. Yeah, really looking forward to this conversation. And I, I like to let the listeners know when I can, you know, how I first encountered the person I'm talking to. And for me, with you, it's a pretty um, a special way you came to speak at a Stephen and Andrea Levine workshop that my first wife and I were attending. We attended a lot of those when she was ill and in the process of ultimately dying. And I was just so uh, moved by the way you talked about, at that point you were working at Zen Hospice, and I was so moved by the way you talked about that. So this is kind of a bit of a full circle for me. 
Well, uh, Stephen uh, was an important mentor for me and also a very dear friend. He and Andrea are dear friends of mine, and I feel very grateful for all the things I learned from them. You and I as well. <laughs> yeah, they're very dear to me, and, um, and so it's nice to be with you as part of that circle, too. Um, although I know you're not working with, uh, with Zen Hospice directly now, I, I'd like you to just share a little bit of how that came about and, and how, you, how you ended up doing that work, because I think what you're doing now so comes out of that, in my mind. Yeah, sure. Well, we started Zen Hospice back in the uh, mid-'80s, I believe, and um, we didn't have much of a plan, basically. We, we thought that there might be a natural match between people who were cultivating what we could call the listening mind or the listening heart in meditation practice and people who really needed to be heard, folks who were dying. And in our case, we worked mostly with... Um, folks who were living on the streets of San Francisco, people who were medically indigent, had little or no family or financial support. And so we cared for them on the on park benches behind City Hall and their single room occupancy hotels. And then eventually we established a hospice where people came and, and stayed with us. Um, I, I always think of it as a kind of fusion of spiritual insight and very practical social action. Yeah. I mean, they were my it, teachers. Cheryl, you know, they're the ones that really taught me anything that I have of value to say uh, came from them. So uh, it it worked for you as well as the people you trained to be with, uh, people who came into the hospice that the listening mind uh, allowed you to learn from people that were at that that doorway. Hmm? Yeah, I I think so. I mean... um, you know, most of the people we cared for, they didn't care beans about Buddhism, you know. They weren't interested in meditation and these things. They needed um, um, to be warm, dry, and inside uh, in, the, yes. in the process of their dying. So we never tried to impose any kind of notions of Buddhism or meditation. But um, what we found was that people trusted us um, precisely because we didn't impose anything on them. And because we were... Um, we had a generous way of listening. Uh, we listened with an open heart, um, uh, without criticality, without judgment. Um, and in that, in that environment, um, whatever people needed to do, they could do. Um, however they needed to be, they could be. We didn't have any notion about how people should die. Um, we weren't interested in imposing anyone's idea, the insurance company's idea or the church's idea or um, um, any Buddhist notion. Really just to allow people to die the way they needed to die. We felt like we were companions to them, really, more than guides. You say you learned a lot from them. Can you, can you think of a story you might share of one of the people you worked with that had a particular impact on, on your learning? Oh, God, you know, Cheryl, there's... Probably thousands, thousands but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, literally, we, we took care of a couple of thousand people over a 20-year period. We trained, well, thousands, two thousand volunteers over that time. But sure, I mean, you know, so many of these people still live in my heart and mind, you know? Mm-hmm. There was a fellow um, who I went to see at, who was referred to us who was in a psychiatric unit at San Francisco General Hospital. And he was there because... He had terminal lung cancer, and he had tried to take his life. 
and he wound up in a psychiatric unit. And so I went into this unit, and if you've ever been in one, you, you know that they're, you know, can be rather stark places. Mm-hmm. So I sat down on this metal chair next to his bed. He was facing the wall. And after a while um, of silence, he turned toward me and he said, who are you? He said, no one's ever stayed this quiet with me in this room before. And I said, well, I get lots of practice at sitting still. Um, I asked him a very simple question. I said, what do you want? And he said, spaghetti. (laughs) And I said, well, we make really great spaghetti at our hospice. Why don't you come stay with us? And he said, okay. And that was the end of the admissions interview. (laughs) Uh, And the next day he came to the the house, to our hospice, and we had a big bowl of spaghetti waiting for him. Because you understand spaghetti meant home and nurturance and familiarity. Now, he stayed with us for three months. And he didn't stop wanting to take his life just because we gave him spaghetti. It was good spaghetti, but it wasn't that good. Mm-hmm. And so um, there was a book at the time that, that explained how to take your life when you are at a terminal illness. So he wanted this book, so I got this book. And I read it to him each night. I have a precept that I use in this work, and it's welcome everything, push away nothing. That means we don't have to like or agree with what's coming at us, but we have to be willing to meet it. Anyway, in the end, this fellow didn't take his life. In fact, the day before he died, he said to me, Frank, I'm happier now than I've ever been in my life. Thank you. And I said, oh, how's that possible? I said, just a week or two ago, you you wanted to take your life. I said, because you couldn't write in your diaries and walk in the park. And he said, oh, that. That was just chasing desire. I thought this was a remarkable (laughs) comment for a fellow who lived on the streets of San Francisco. I said, what do you mean? So what do you mean? And he said, I said, do you mean these things don't? bring you joy anymore? He said, no, it's not that. He said, now my joy comes from the coolness of the breeze and the softness of the sheets. I thought this was a remarkable turnaround from a guy who I met in a psychiatric unit. We never told him to meditate. Yeah, 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 isn't it? I mean, we never told him to meditate. We never, you know, imposed any notions on him. We just tried to create a beautiful, receptive environment in which... He could die the way he needed to die. Yeah. Everybody What's, deserves that. What really moves me about that is that in some way he did end up kind of absorbing the teachings that you follow, but not because you asked him to follow them. <laughs> Just because he yeah, absorbed uh, being yeah, with and you and, and being heard. Way, he found his own way to them, yeah? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and expressed them so beautifully. Wasn't it? Isn't it? So, yes, yeah. so beautifully. Mm-hmm. So, so when you know, had this, um, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I just wanted to say that you know, the thing that's extraordinary about the dying process is that it's such a microcosm of our lives. You know, it shows us really what's important to us and who matters to us, and and um, you know, where the meaning and value in our life is. You know. Yes. And. Um, it's such a shame to me that we often wait until the end of our life to discover this. Yes, I I, uh, I know you know our friend Stephen and Andrea's book, One Year to Live, that is not for dying people. Um, yeah. That's, that's for those of us that are not facing uh, any terminal diagnosis except being alive. Um, you know, I, I, just, I just love that idea. We're all trying to, to live um, in the face of death on some level. But the truck is closer to people like 
the man you just described, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, you know, all we got, in a way, is this moment. The future hasn't come yet. The past is behind us. All we've got is this moment. And we can choose to live fully and, and um, completely um, with love and wisdom in this moment. It doesn't mean that we're, we're um, living in a fantasy. It means we're actually engaging in our life with, um, with uh, a tremendous amount of skill and intention. You know? um, for me, this is what dying folks have taught me. Don't wait, you know. Don't wait for some other time, you know. Um, Waiting is so full of expectation, yeah? Waiting for the next moment to arrive, we miss this one. Waiting for our mother to die, we miss all the moments in between. So I I say don't wait, you know. If there's people you love, tell them you love them. You know, if there's things you really want to do, do them. I don't mean in some kind of panic or greedy, you know, grasping at life, but really not putting off this life, stepping into it with both feet, you know. That that seems important to me. To me as well. And, and... Maybe some kind of um, burning away of what isn't so important to do. <laughs> you know, I, I've found that for myself that, um, you know, not, not so attached to things that don't really matter to me. Well, I, I think, you know, I, you know, like yourself, people who have been exposed to dying, um, dying of a loved one, they come to understand this, you know, that they recognize that, you know, on their deathbed, they're not going to be, you know, trying to balance their checkbook or, or check their email, you know. No. Um, death is the ultimate clarifying experience. It shows us what is value and meaning in our lives. And, and uh, it's, a, it's such a real encouragement to live fully, yeah. Uh, this is why every spiritual tradition that I'm aware of has kept death as some kind of advisor in their life, you know, to remind us of its purpose and value. Uh, we're, we're so on the same page about that, you know, just oh, being, being yeah. right here. In fact, I'm, uh, it's, it's helping me to just be here with you, you know, t- to remember that that's what is real. You and I here that's talking is, is what's real. And, yeah. um, and, and and those people who are listening. And those people who are listening. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I, I always imagine that we don't come to, well, I know for myself, I haven't come to my work in this radio show by accident. You know, it was through a series of profound events in my life that I sure didn't ask for, but um, I do value all the learnings. And I'm guessing that's true for you, too, that you had experiences that that pulled you in that direction. Uh, would that be a fair statement? Oh, sure. You know, and, uh, you know, of course, it's hard to know exactly uh, our, what got us here. Our lives don't progress in a linear fashion, really. They, no. You know? Sometimes awarenesses kind of explode onto the surface of our of our lives, but yeah, I think my my work with the dying has been informed by a lot of things. Uh, when I was a teenager, my parents died when I was young, so I was out on my own quite early. Um, 
I worked in refugee camps where I saw a great deal of horrible dying and tremendous grief of people having lost family members and lost their countries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was around at the very beginning of the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco, which was kind of ground zero for the AIDS epidemic. You know, we had 30,000 people in the city that were diagnosed with HIV. I certainly so, remember. Yeah, so these were all huge influences in my life, you know. But I think also one that is important to include is, you know, I've been practicing Buddhist since in my 20s, and, yeah. and the central uh, central tenet, if you will, or, uh, of that tradition is that things are impermanent, that things are subject to change, not just our lives, everything. Everything change. Yes. And when we and, when we live when we live in harmony with that in some way, well, then our lives go a lot better. And when we resist yeah. it, well, we we suffer a great deal. So um, that's a very big influence. I think, very in big. Life. Yeah. I hear it in everything you're talking about. And speaking of impermanence, it's time for a break in this conversation. So after the break, what I'd really like to hear about is kind of your journey from all that you just mentioned um, into applying that that principle of listening with those thousands of people. Let's, let's talk about your own process of, I think, probably learning more and more how to do it because death is sort of a, a bigger challenge to that sometimes. And yeah. in, in these few minutes... Listeners out there, you can go to the Good Grief homepage to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, connect on LinkedIn, and you can go to my website, www.weatheringgrief.com. To reach Frank Ostaseski, please go to M-E-T-T-A-I-N-S-T-I-T-U-T-E dot org. We'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Make the most of your beautiful life. Listen to Ageless Living with Dr. Tong Lee and co-host Kurt Wilhelm to gain tips on how to live healthier and happier, alleviate suffering, prevent disease, become more beautiful in body, mind, and fashion, and find peace, balance, and success in your life. Are you aware that every 3,500 calories that you eat above what you burn will put a pound of fat on your body? And running one mile only burns 200 calories? So portion size does matter, and migraines do have a cure. What is it? You'll have to tune in Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Jones, the host of Good Grief. You can find me at Voice America and at my website, www.weatheringgrief.com. Today, Frank Ostaseski, founder of the Meta Institute, an organization that trains practitioners in compassionate end-of-life care, is with me. Before the break, we were talking about everything you've been a part of over the years and where what has led you to your life now. And I'd like to go in the direction I was thinking during the break about um, the principle of listening, which uh, having been exposed to Buddhism quite a bit myself, um, of course, I, uh, um, I absorb that. It, it's part of my thinking. And I'm also aware that I had to learn to listen that way when I myself was feeling a lot of grief. Uh, and I wonder if we could talk about how you cultivated, because we're also talking about losing thousands of people, <laughs> you know, and I'm guessing that must have impacted you quite deeply. And I'm wondering if you can talk about the intersection of those, your own personal experience and the listening experience. Yeah, well, um, I think when we're working with somebody, whether we're working with somebody who's dying or a grieving family or friends, loved ones, um, it's really important that we bring our whole self to the experience. And what I mean by that is that in the process of healing others, um, uh, we're called upon to bring everything we have to that dynamic. That means we bring our joy and our expertise and our strength, but we also bring our weakness and our fear and our own grief. Um, that doesn't mean that we're using the patient or the client as our therapist, but um, we're recognizing that in order to really build an empathetic bridge to the other, we have to do our homework. We have to become really familiar with our own experience of loss, of grief, of, of our relationship to dying. You know? It's only then that we can begin to imagine what it might be like for the other person. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> and I guess I would imagine, but this is just imagination, that there must have been certain people that you've developed stronger relationships with so that that impacted your um, your process of letting them go. It, would oh, that sure. be true? Yeah. Sure. You know, I, you know I, I, I used to, when we interviewed staff or volunteers to work with us at Zen Hospice, I used to ask them a very simple question. I'd say, are you willing to let your heart, are you willing to let yourself fall in love and then have your heart be broken? Because really, that, that, that's the way it works, you know? Can you really open yourself completely to love this person fully and completely, and then knowing that they will die? Yeah. Can you let your heart be broken? I, I, I'm not so worried about this. Hearts heal, you know? They're a soft muscle. 
And, um, and my experience is, you know, when we allow them to open, you know, then everything, then we're, then everything can impress itself on us. All the beauty and all the difficulty of life can show itself to us, and we can learn from both. Yeah. You know? Um, I, I, um, heart attack a few years ago. I was teaching a workshop for um, uh, doctors and nurses on compassionate care, and in the midst of the um, the uh, seminar, I had a heart attack. <laughs> and you know, very dramatic. And, uh, <laughs> I would think, I would say so. Yes. <laughs> yeah, very awfully painful, and I had to go to the hospital, and I had triple bypass surgery. It was a difficult ordeal, and there was a long, long recovery period after that. And uh, during that period of recovery. What I realized was a couple of things. One is that uh, my own sense of self was really stripped away by this encounter. Um, the way in which I functioned in the world had shifted. Um, there was more, first it felt like some kind of dependency or weakness, but then as I stayed with it, it came about, it came, came to be a kind of transparency where there were fewer veils between myself and the world, between myself and others. And one of the things that happened during that period of about six months is that I had a lot of dreams. Not uncommon for people who have gone through things like this to have strong dreams. Mm-hmm. But in my dreams, so many of the people that I had cared for over the years, like I said earlier, maybe a thousand people or more, they showed up in my dreams. And it was beautiful the way they showed up. And sometimes it felt like they were coming to give me a piece of advice. Sometimes they were coming to say thank you. Or sometimes they were just coming to sit with me, keep me company in a way. Now, I don't mean to suggest that that they were viscerally in the room with me, but they were there in my psyche, there in my heart, and um, teaching me, continuing to accompany me many, many years later. So, yes, um, when you let your heart open to others, um, they stay with you. They live in you even when they die. Yeah, the relationship continues. Uh, I'm I'm seeing that in my mind's eye, just visitations, you know. um, It doesn't even matter, literally or or metaphorically, but just the sense of you being accompanied by everyone you had connected with in that way. That's very beautiful to me. You know, in your and when you needed that. That's right. That's right. And, you know, it's not an uncommon experience for people who are grieving, of course. And I don't, again, I'm not trying to be esoteric or California woo-woo or anything like that. <laughs> but it's, it's really common that uh, people have dreams um, of their loved one. Sometimes those dreams can feel, are so vivid, they feel like visitations almost. But the point is that, that we're, what's really important to stress here is that the relationship, the relationship with the person that has died continues. It doesn't end with their death. Where you know, my mother died a long time ago, but she and I are still working out some things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I'm. I'm remembering back to uh, dreams I had of my wife after she died, and looking back, I can see that there was actually a progression in our relationship. You know, first she was just coming to visit, and then I'd be happy, and then I'd wake up and be unhappy, (laughs) you know. And then after a while, I had a dream that she uh, was speaking in another language, and she was had turned into a gay man. (laughs) 
you know, at that point I realized she really was dead, you know? Yeah. So I, I know what you're talking about, that dreams can, um, can be teachings. Uh, yeah, and there's different ways that reality um, um, establishes itself, we could say, in our psyche, you know, lots of ways. So sometimes it happens through conversations with others. Uh, people do it through art and other mm-hmm. kinds of expression, and sometimes it happens in our dream life. Um, we come to uh, into reality with the situation as it currently is. And uh, this is a big part of the healing process. Yeah, it can't so, be rushed. It can't be rushed. You know, it, it just can't. It no. has its own timeline. It seems so, um, but it's not. You know, there's this kind of slogan out there that uh, time heals, and and I don't. I'm not so much in favor of this. I, I think it's a half truth. I don't think that time alone heals. I don't think if we just wait, things will get better. I think time and attention heal. When we give our attention, when we turn our attention toward our experience, particularly toward those parts of our experience that are painful or difficult or cause us suffering, when we turn our attention toward those experiences, then things heal. Um, But just time passing and ignoring what's difficult, this doesn't create healing. This just uh, makes the pain go underground and come out in all kinds of unhealthy ways. Yes. The other thing that I'm I'm uh, very struck by in what we're talking about in terms of you having had that heart attack is that two things. One is, no matter how much work we've done, new experiences teach more <laughs> if we're if we're paying attention. And, well, hopefully, um, our, our understanding continues to evolve. Yeah, I think that's exactly. accurate. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, and and that's very evident in the way you're talking about that experience. That in that moment, it was you in the bed—a yeah. different experience from being with someone who's in the bed. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, the uh, the view from the other side of the sheets is a really different view. <laughs> um, yes. You know, and. Uh, one of the things that it, that it really showed me, and of course it showed me many things, but, you know, uh, is the power of habit. Um, I like to swim in the ocean. I love the ocean, and I love big waves, and it's fun to swim in them. But I also have a lot of respect for the ocean. I know it can sweep me away at any moment, you know. And so I have to take care. I have to pay attention. Uh, habits are like that. They are really powerful. Uh, they have a big undertow. And if we don't attend to them, if we don't notice them, they will sweep us away. Mm. Um, and the habits of our life have a kind of momentum that carry through even to the time of our dying. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, what habits do I want to create? Ones of control <laughs> and contraction or ones of openness and kindness, love, compassion? Yeah. Well, and, and also I'm sure that that, um, although it was a different view, I'm sure that all of your attending over all those many years did impact very much how you uh, how you experienced being the one in the bed. Would you say? Oh yes, for sure. I, I wish I could say I was terribly enlightened about it all, and that I, you know, was completely open to the experience at all times. <laughs> it's not true. It's not true. I, I had a very difficult time. Um, it was really hard for me. Um, this surgery is a traumatic surgery to the body, but also to the psyche. Um, yeah, it scared me. I was really scared, you know. Uh, but the thing that was most difficult wasn't the fear. 
what was most difficult was nobody seemed to have any willingness to be with my suffering. When I was in the hospital, for example, uh, nurses, doctors, others would come in the room, and they would ask me how I was, but they weren't really listening. And they they had more of a relationship sometimes with 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 the machines that they brought into the room than they did with me. And, and this one, these were not bad people. These were very good people, kind people, who were driven mercilessly by the tasks and the systems that they worked in. But it was also true even of my friends. There were a lot of friends who came in the room, and they'd say, how are you? And I'd say, miserable. And they'd say, oh, well, you'll feel better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And while that would seem to be a, you know, a cheerful thing to say, what it left me with is really left me completely alone in my suffering. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted somebody who was willing to be with me, with things being miserable for a period of time. I was willing to do it, but <laughs> others weren't. You know? And that was very hard. And I think that's a common experience when people are uh, sick or dying or, or grieving, that we have a hard time being with other people's suffering. Uh, we want to manage it. We want to move it along. We want to get over it, you know. Yeah, exactly. It's curious to me. You know, we, we talk about managing people's grief. We never talk about managing their joy. We never, <laughs> try to, we never go to people and say, can you get over that joy? It's a little too much for me, you know? <laughs> you know, g- g- grief is, a, is our common ground. It's a human experience. And, and uh, boy, I don't want to rush people through it. I want people to know it and feel it. And let it let it do its work on them. You know, it's a part of a healing process that often leaves people not devastated, but rather more whole, more complete, more alive than they've ever felt before. I have the idea, and it sounds as if you agree that all of all of the uh, capacity for feeling we have lives in one place, and if we block one, it actually automatically blocks the others. Uh, You know, learning how to be with my own suffering made me a lot more joyful. (laughs) Uh, I'm much, much more of a joyful person now because I'm not trying to block anything. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting perspective. I mean, I do think that we sometimes kind of put a, try to put a kind of armoring around our hearts. Um, I see this a lot. I work with a lot of healthcare professionals, doctors and nurses, who are encountering really difficult things each and every day. And one of the strategies that they use sometimes is to try and armor around their heart. And one of the challenges of such a strategy is that it, it locks the pain in. You know, you build a shield around your heart while you you also lock in the pain. It's very hard for tenderness to get through such a shield, you know. Mm -hmm. Very hard for kindness Mm -hmm. to penetrate Mm -hmm. such a shield. And so, um, you know, I have a friend, uh, Joan Halifax, a good friend, teacher. and She says, in in this work, we need a strong back and a soft front. And, And I like this. Beautiful about expression. Very much. Isn't that great? Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. We, 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 we often have it reversed. You know, we have a very armored front and a very soft and sort of jellyfish back, you know, where we're collapsing <laughs> in a way. But, but really, yes. we need a strong back. We need strength. We need, uh, you know, capacity, resilience um, to move forward in the world. And we need a soft front. We need kindness and compassion and love and tenderness uh, for ourselves and, and others in the world. That feels like a really good balance for me. 
you know, one without the other is a little mushy or yeah. a little too brittle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a beautiful place to go to our second break. Um, after we come back, I'd really like to talk about how all these things we've been um, talking about in these first two segments lead to what you're doing now. And, and um, let's, let's talk about your work now when we come back. Uh, it's time for another break. And again, you can go to the Good Grief host page to contact me in your favorite way. Don't forget to reach Frank Ostaseski. You can go to metainstitute.org. We'll be back right after the break. What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. How is your health? Do you want to know more about it? Every day there are new technologies, procedures, and healing techniques coming forward. To understand them, tune in to Speaking of Health with Dr. Michael Cudlis. Our guests come from different backgrounds in the fields of health and healing. We'll discuss new realities and modalities, from chiropractic to metagenics. It's all designed to improve your quality of life. Speaking of Health is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Save on your prescriptions with the RX Savings Plus drug discount card offered by Voice America. It is not insurance and discounts are only available from participating pharmacies, but 9 out of 10 pharmacies participate nationwide. Start saving today. Print your free card online at voiceamerica.rxsavingsplus.com or text the word talk radio to 96362. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Jones, the host of Good Grief. You can find me at Voice America and at my website, www.weatheringgrief.com. Today, Frank Ostaseski, founder of Zen Hospice and the Meta Institute and trainer in uh, how to be with end of life in, in a compassionate way, is with, with me. Um, before the break, we were talking about how uh, our experience of, of listening helps us to be 
more present to all the experiences of life um, and the importance of listening to all the parts of ourselves and others, the painful parts and the beautiful parts and the ones that are painful and beautiful. How does all that show in your work today? What are you doing today that comes out of everything we've talked about so far? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, at the Med Institute, we're primarily an educational organization. So we're training healthcare professionals and some hospice volunteers about how to provide mindful and compassionate care of the dying. We have a wonderful program which we call the End of Life Practitioner Program. And it really teaches people not only skill sets, but helps them develop capacities to be with people at this extremely vulnerable time of their life and also to be with others in their grief. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about that. We have a, a training program which consists of five modules. Um, the first of those is called Mindful and Compassionate Service, and it's actually coming up this April. And if people are interested in it, they can go to the, the website and find uh, the End of Life Practitioner Program and, and, and learn more about the program and learn more about the modules. That's um, metainstitute.org or com? Org? Is yeah, it .org? MetaInstitute.org. Thank you okay. for that. I, I think uh, I might have misspoken earlier, so I'm trying. Oh. I'm correcting that. <laughs> but you know, honestly, um, you know, the I sort of feel that what we're doing at the Meta Institute is an outgrowth of what we learned at Zen Hospice Project at the bedside of a couple of thousand people. And I, I felt a responsibility. I felt people let me in on their lives at a very, very vulnerable time, at a very intimate time of their lives. And, they, and, you know, no matter how someone dies, whether they are opening and blossoming or turning toward the wall and withdrawal, they teach me something. And I felt a responsibility to pass on what they had taught me to others. And so we created the Meta Institute with the intention of sharing that, those lessons with a much larger audience of people. Um, to do that, I gathered a faculty of good friends, um, some remarkable teachers, um, Rachel Naomi Remen, the author of Kitchen Table Wisdom, Ram Das, the international spiritual teacher, Charlie Garfield, who started the Shanti Project, the first peer-to-peer AIDS counseling program in the, in the country. Um, Francis Vaughn, the pioneer in transpersonal psychology. Angel Therian, a, a um, extraordinary cross-cultural anthropologist. Um, Norman Fisher, the former abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, the largest Zen Center in the country. And uh, Angie Stevens, the co-director of the program, who with Treya Wilbur and Ken Wilbur started the first cancer support communities in the country. So this is a remarkable group of people who have come together to be a faculty for this program. Uh, and none of them get paid. They all do it as a gift, as a kind of legacy project. It's our work to share with others what, um, what we were so gratefully given um, by uh, people who were dying. So it's a remarkable program. There's nothing quite like it in the country. And what an amazing group of people. Wow. Uh, um, all of those people are people who have touched me very profoundly in their, yeah. in their, um, actually in their compassionate hearts more than anything else. Uh, that's, that's probably a good common thread amongst all of them. And they're all dear friends. I call them my playgroup. This is my playgroup. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, it's our commitment to try and offer what we can, our teachings, to as many people as uh, we can um, 
can directly experience us. So we do that, and we also do a number of teleconferences for people who can't come to these particular uh, retreats and seminars so that people all over the country can participate. You know, if they go to Med Institute, folks can sign up there and they'll get information about these programs and also uh, teleconferences and such. Mm-hmm. So those are, that's an expression of, uh, of what uh, dying folks taught us. Yes, and um, I I have the sense, at least for me, um, I have to stay current. It isn't enough to, to, uh, you know, I have to keep doing my own work of of grief uh, to be present with other people. Otherwise, I get kind of clogged up. Do you you work with that? With the people that you're, uh, do you work with how to, how to approach grief, not how to grieve, but how to approach it with the people you're training? Sure, but, you know, let me just say something before that, which is that, you know, when I'm working with somebody who's dying or when I'm working with someone who's grieving, I have to always be looking at my own fear, my own grief, you know. Yes. Um, that's what enables me to be a compassionate presence with them rather than, you know, someone who stands back in pity. So I have to always be doing my own work, and I have to, I'm always regularly working with people who are dying or who are grieving, and that's part of my work as well. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a way in which it stays alive and fresh in me and, um, and, and a process by which I'm continually confronting or meeting my own experience of loss. Sure, that's, that's essential. When I was when I was um, becoming familiar with your work in preparation, I was very um, struck by the three parts of grief that you talked about. Could you share that with the listeners? The- yeah, yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, and you know, it's a kind of model, if you will. Um, <laughs> that helps. I, I us hear your to- hesitation. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. No model should should, uh, should overcome any model should overcome reality, right? (laughs) Yeah, the the danger in any model, any any um, map, of course, is that we confuse it with the territory. Um, So instead of surrendering to the force of grief, we sometimes prefer to know what to do. So we reach for information that will take us past the experience. And so my concern, of course, is that if we impose a map on this process of grieving, on an individual's grief, we can do them a great disservice and perhaps even harm them uh, through our well-meant efforts. So I always want to put a warning label on any kind of model, you know. Um, we have sure. a Yeah, I, I mean, you, you, I'm sure you see this in your work, too, that we, we have individual and cultural habits around managing our grief, as I mentioned earlier. And, um uh, our own unexplored fear and grief, I think, can lead us to hurrying others along through their process of healing. And as you suggested earlier, grief seems to have its own schedule and its own unique rhythm and texture for each of us. It's a deep, slow process of the soul, and uh, it's not my experience that it can be rushed. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think what I think what touched me about your model, as it were, is that it was just a description of experiences that people have when grieving. And I didn't get the sense you were talking in a linear way about it, uh, you know. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Yeah, so the, so the model, if you will, that we, we sometimes use is, we call it, 
very simple. We think of it as having three dimensions or phases, if you will. And I don't mean this as um, a time frame, but as you just suggested, experiences that seem to emerge in the process of grieving. And so the first of those phases, if you will, we call simply loss. And it's the initial experience, the shock of loss, the feeling like you've been punched in the belly, you know, and you can't find your breath. This is the, the initial experience of loss. And, you know, we do, we're confused in it. We don't know quite what to do. We, we can't find our keys, and we don't know which way to turn at the end of the driveway, you know, and, and um, it's very disorienting for us. And um, oftentimes we have these kind of waves, big, big waves of emotion that come through that we have absolutely no control over whatsoever, you know. So yes. that's the first initial experience of loss. And then the second experience that we um, often talk about is losing. So there's loss and then there's losing. You know, loss isn't a single experience. When someone we love dies, we keep losing them. Mm. You know, if, if our wife has died and she was the one that did the banking, when we go to the bank, we lose her again. Or, or if she's the one that, that cut the lawn, you know, when we, when we have to do that ourselves, we lose them again. So this feeling of losing that goes on for a long time. We don't just lose the person. We lose the role that they played in our life, too, right? Mm-hmm. And then Absolutely. <laughs> right. Well, mm-hmm. I, I want to come back and talk about each of these with you, but then I just want to name them for the audience, and that is, yes, this, this is third. especially because uh, we're we're not that far from the from the end. So let's make sure we okay. tell them all so about the, the three, one, and then we'll go back. Okay, great. So the third one is loosening, loosening. So we have loss, we have losing, and we have loosening. And we just think of loosening as when the the tight grip of grief, a knot of grief begins to get untied a little bit. And the intensity of the experience, the emotions, the uh, states of mind that arise start to subside a little bit. And we can breathe a bit more. And we can feel, start to feel a new relationship developing with the person that we've lost. Um, As we spoke a moment ago, um, the relationship continues even when someone dies. And so we start to feel maybe them in our hearts, uh, in our minds, a kind of internal relationship with them that doesn't replace the external relationship we have, but it, it basically establishes a new way of relating to the person that, that has died or that is gone. So loss, losing, and listening. Uh, that's such a beautiful frame for my own experience and the experiences I witness with people. And I, I don't think of them as entirely discreet. For instance, yeah. if I, uh, you know, in my joyful, happy life now with my wife, now, uh, my second wife, um, if I see someone two blocks away who moves the way my first wife moved, I might forget for a half of a millisecond you know, oh, it's Joanne. No, it's not. You know, so I feel that that um, loss part can come up for a moment, even now, but it's so much outweighed by the loosening. Uh, yeah. You know, there's there's so much every year that goes by, more loosening is present in my relationship to her. Uh, yeah, beautiful, it, beautiful. You know. Um, this this last one that we talked about here, loose, loosening, um, 
there was a woman that I'm aware of that had um, been married for 50 years, and her husband died. And, um, you know, she was, of course, just grief-struck. And, uh, mm-hmm. and she went home, uh, and each night she would make um, dinner. And she'd make a place at the table for him and for her. <laughs> and she'd sit at the table, and she would talk to him about her day, and they would share, you know, confidences, so to speak. And um, she didn't tell anyone about this because she was afraid that people might think she was a little crazy. But she said that, that she would have these conversations with him, and, and she would hear back uh, his answers um, in her own mind, in his voice. And then after about six months, she stopped making place for him at the table. But she continued to speak with him and ask his advice about this decision or that decision. And she said after about a year and a half, she said the whole relationship shifted. She said, now I decide where we go on vacation. I take it with me <laughs> everywhere, but I decide where we go. <laughs> That's loosening. That's loosening. Yeah. That is. That of, is. I'm watching that with my mother currently. Yeah. <laughs> She's yeah. about, I think my dad's been dead about four years, and I can see that she's she's making the decisions now all by herself, but he still yeah. comes along. Yeah, yeah so, <laughs> so. And it often is that way, that people begin to, he- they, they begin to hear the answers in their own voice rather than the voice of their spouse or loved one. Yeah. But, yeah. but, you know, we don't want to jump to that, right? We, we can't right. get there without first going through the difficult early stages that I talked about loss, you know, the shock and the disbelief, uh, sometimes the guilt. Uh, the, the, oh, it's just so, you know, our capacity to judge ourselves is so highly developed in this culture and it's so merciless, you know? Yes, yes, uh, yes. I never cease to be amazed by our capacity to be cruel to ourselves, you know? And this often is so in, in the first stages of loss, I think. Um, well, we'd rather we, think we're in control of something than... <laughs> then that it's, you know, out of everyone's control. Completely beyond, our, completely beyond our control. Yeah. I remember a woman I worked with said that one day she was going through the cereal aisle in the supermarket and she just lost it, you know, right there between the Cheerios and the Raisin Bran. You know, she just fell into a puddle on the floor crying, you know, because she was so devastated by her grief. And, you know, it comes like this in great big waves that we can't manage and control. We can only respond. That's a beautiful place for us to end today. We can't manage and control. We can just respond. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for this conversation, Frank. It was great. I'm, uh, I really enjoyed talking with you today. And again, you can reach Frank Ostaseski at themetainstitute.org. Next week, join me when I welcome Ash Beckham. There are two videos of Ash speaking, one at Boulder Ignite and the other a TEDx talk, went viral, carried by Upworthy and the Huffington Post. Ash will join me to talk about the hard conversations we all need to have, a capacity she investigated in herself through coming out as a lesbian. Ash believes we all have a closet we need to come out of, and that telling the truth about ourselves frees us. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. Don't forget to go to the Good Grief homepage at Voice America to email me, like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, connect on LinkedIn. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. 
Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.